Hello, and welcome to this week's Political Thinker podcast. My name's Christopher Bremner MacDonald. This week, we talk to Associate Professor Matthew Stubbs from the Law School at the University of Adelaide, where he serves as the Associate Dean of Learning and Teaching and Editor-in-Chief of the Adelaide Law Review. Matthew Stubbs completed undergraduate degrees in finance and economics and took a first-class honours degree in law before undertaking the professional qualification and being admitted to the legal practice as a barrister and solicitor of the Supreme Court of South Australia and the High Court of Australia. Stubbs then returned to academic life, taking the FA and MF Joiner Scholarship in Law, completing his PhD in Australian Constitutional Law at the Adelaide Law School under the supervision of Professors Rosemary Owens and John Williams. He is published in the fields of negligence, human rights and statutory interpretation. He has taught at Adelaide University since 2003 and has been at the Law School since 2008. He recently spent six months at Stanford University in the United States with space law. So that's actually the topic of today's podcast. We're talking space law. Enjoy. Associate Professor Matthew Stubbs, welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to speak to you. Look, thank you so much for joining me. And today we're going to be talking about space law. Now, space law is something which a lot of people think, oh, well, what do you need space law for? But law is everywhere. In, in all facets of society today, we're always dealing with the law. Whether you're somebody who is criminally breaking the law or whether you're walking down the street, you're still following conventions and laws which are put in place. And so I suppose space needs to have the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Space requires laws just like anything else. Um, and space, particularly because of the kind of the ultra hazardous nature of activities in outer space, mm-hmm. um, comes with some particular dangers that you don't see elsewhere. Um, but apart from that, space is just like anywhere else. It's going to need laws. Um, there are going to be instances where two nations or two companies are going to both want to make use of space, and there might be some inconsistency there. So there has to be a, a legal regime that governs outer space, just as there's a legal regime governing what happens on Earth. One of the things that fascinates me about space law is the fact that when the major treaties and things were brought in, it was at the height of the Cold War. You've got the United States, you've got the Soviet Union, basically at a standoff with each other for 70 years, essentially. And not quite that long, but a long time anyway. And they managed to sort of make deals on how to act in space, which is an amazing thing to do. And it makes me think of the treaties on principles governing the activities of states in the exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, i.e. the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, look, it is. And I think that the point, in, in a sense, about that is that states always have to work out ways of working together. And even in the height of Cold War, even at times of great tension, there are interests that states can see that they share um, and working out a legal regime for the exploration of outer space was one of those. So it wasn't just dreamt up in 1967, there was a process 
um, that led to this, including a General Assembly resolution in 1963 that was very influential, um, and then the Outer Space Treaty in 1967, uh, which is then followed by another four treaties. So there are five treaties essentially governing the, the law of outer space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it, this moves me to my next question, which is when it comes to the utilisation of, of space. So the Moon Agreement, so the agreement governing the activities of states on the Moon and other celestial bodies, from what I understand, basically says that you can't mine the Moon. You're not allowed to mine the Moon. Yeah, so look, I mean, the Moon Agreement is an interesting one. Um, There aren't very many states that are party to the Moon Agreement. Uh, Australia happens to be one of them, um, but no major spacefaring state is. So um, in a sense, you can put to one side what's in the Moon Agreement and just focus on what's in the Outer Space Treaty. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's in the Outer Space Treaty does tell us quite a a few interesting things about the concept of mining. So um, the Outer Space Treaty um, says, amongst other things, that states are not able to appropriate um, the moon or other celestial bodies. Uh, one of the issues with space mining is whether going to, say, an asteroid and mining a mineral that's on the asteroid constitutes appropriation or not. So is this the state engaging in an activity that it's not permitted to? Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, of course, this was sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't matter that it wasn't clear what the law on space mining was because it seemed so far away. Um, but now that the prospect of space mining is actually quite a real one. Um, so there are a number of companies that are um, down this path some way already. Yes. Um, it's probably worth saying there are kind of a couple of different markets that might be pursued by space mm-hmm. mines. Um, the real market um, is for uh, things that can be used effectively as fuel, um, which aren't going to be brought back to Earth. So the market is not to bring things back to Earth. The market is to get an asteroid, to find a bunch of hydrogen, which can be used as a fuel, and to leave it in outer space. Mm-hmm. And then when there's a, a need for it, you can sell it on to someone that needs it. Yes. The, the point behind this, of course, is that to escape Earth's gravity requires a huge amount of effort. Um, a huge amount of energy is required. Um, and therefore, if you are considering a, one of these really kind of extensive missions, you want to go to Mars, for example, um, to get enough fuel kind of out of Earth's gravity with you is enormously costly yes. and difficult. Um, if, on the other hand, all you have to do is get into orbit, and then in orbit you can pick up some fuel there, then that's a real prospect. And so that's one of the reasons space mining is attractive. There is a part of space mining that says, well, let's bring it back to Earth. Um, that's for effectively platinum group metals. Yes. Um, that's the, the more difficult um, part, I think, logistically, in, in fact. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are space mining companies looking at both of those possibilities. Uh, but I think that the, the discovery of something for use in space is probably the big one. Mm. Um, mm. But of course, space mining, just like any other sort of mining, is going to require a legal regime. So we're familiar with the legal regime that applies to mining. It's the same as applied in the gold rushes. Um, you, know, you, you think that there might be a mineral, you make a claim to a particular area, you get a government license or permit to go and explore that, and you can then get an exclusive right for that exploration. And if you do find what you're looking for, then you get to um, you know, go and, and sell those, those minerals um, on the payment of royalties to the mm-hmm. government. Now at the moment, there's no equivalent of that in outer space. So there are companies who are within a year or two of having the technological capacity to go to outer space, having the technological capacity to find an asteroid that has minerals of interest to them Mm -hmm. and possibly the capacity within a reasonable number of years of actually mining them. Um, The question then is, how does this work in the absence of a legal regime? So there's nothing in the Outer Space Treaty that is going to tell us 
how this will work. Um, either you take the view that the Outer Space Treaty bans mining, or you don't. Um, but it seems to me that the, the states are really moving in the direction of permitting mining. Whatever might be the kind of the correct interpretation of the treaty, and I, I've always thought that it probably doesn't favour mining. Um, when the United States and when uh, Luxembourg announced their space mining laws, there wasn't what you would call the sort of universal condemnation that you might have expected if this was obviously accepted as illegal by everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but of course the question then is, uh, if company A can go to an asteroid, invest all of the money of course and, and, and time and expertise in finding the right asteroid, working out that it's got what they want there, and then getting up a mission with you know, appropriate tools to extract it. Um, if they can do all of that, um, what's to stop company B from at any point in the process when they learn what's going on, trying to go and get it first. Yes. Um, and of course, company A and company B might be from uh, the United States and from Russia. Um, so there, there may be huge geopolitical significance to this as well. And the question is, how do we take a 50-year-old treaty and work out what it's going to do um, in this practical context in the next few years? Um, and the answer to that question, sadly, is we don't really know what the answer no, is. No, of course. Um, of it's course. going to require further development in the law. I suppose that the uh, Space Resources Exploitation, sorry, Exploration and Utilisation Act, that's what I was trying to say, of 2015 in the United States uh, basically says that the United States can go and mine uh, uh, asteroids, other celestial bodies, etc., etc. I wrote a paper for this for international law in space law back in 2016, and uh, the question of the paper basically was, uh, does the Space Resource Exploration and Utilisation Act uh, contradict the Outer Space Treaty? And my argument actually was no, even though I believed yes, I thought I'd go the opposite. But the argument really is, technically yes it is, because, at least for the Moon Treaty anyway, that there's this one, one phrase in the Outer Space Treaty for the benefit of all mankind, or... Uh, humanity essentially as in you'd say in today's words which you could sort of argue space exploration in general is for the benefit of all humanity and so therefore if people are mining perhaps it is in the benefit of everybody so therefore it's okay uh, what, what, what do you think about that well look, it's an interesting question and you know yes you're right on one argument kind of the discovery and exploration of space is something that brings benefits clearly for all humankind um, but on the other hand, uh, why that benefit should flow to a company established in the United States as opposed to a company established elsewhere mm -hmm. um, is, is perhaps a more difficult question. Uh, so, you know, yes, this, this argument about space mining kind of brings up this question. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to really get a sense of um, where, where states think this should go. Um, Perhaps one example that we can take something from is the international seabed. Um, so this is another area where states agree that they know nobody has sovereignty over the international seabed below the high seas. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, they made an attempt to create a regime um, for what's called the area, which is the international seabed. Uh, and that regime was to have an authority, the international seabed authority, um, and that was effectively a plan that the benefits and the profits from whatever could be mined from the seabed would be shared amongst all states. Um, now that wasn't a particularly successful regime, it's one of no. the reasons that the United States is not a party to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, and 
the, the prospect of whether the same thing could be instituted in outer space seems quite remote. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that the, the area for action is going to be um, a more mundane one where states might agree on at least some protocols about um, first access, about safety zones around installations and so on, that can deal with some of the, the more practical issues of, of conflict without resolving perhaps the headline, um, the headline kind of global legal issues. Of course. Now, when it when it comes to territorial rights, as you say, the law of the sea basically says that you can have a you can have territory to a certain point. You can have exclusive economic zones. Uh, you can have territorial waters, etc., etc. Obviously, when it comes to space, there's really no constant idea at this stage. But really, what's to stop somebody uh, from travelling to Mars and essentially claiming terra nullius and saying, "There's nobody here. I'm claiming this planet for us." So the easy answer to that question is that the Outer Space Treaty specifically says that no state can exercise sovereignty in outer space. Mm -hmm. So it's not the case um, as it was on Earth, where if you could get yourself to a landmass that no one had got to before, it was yours in a sense. Um, It is more complicated than that. So no one can actually set up a claim to any celestial body or any part of a celestial body. Um, What the, the space treaties don't tell us is if, for example, you have two um, colonies uh, based on a celestial body um, which arise from two different states on Earth, um, how close they can be together, what their relationships are going to be. Um, And so, of course, general international law can answer some of those questions. Uh, But these these sorts of things that are brought on now by the prospect of things that are now technologically possible that weren't 50 years ago uh, are really important questions that there aren't answers to from existing space law. Of course. Now, what, what happens to the legal obligations to astronauts, essentially? So you've got, you've got issues wh- where people's health can be, uh, physical health and mental health could be drastically altered by spending prolonged periods in space. One of the things I was reading actually about the other day was that somebody who travels to Mars, the fact they'll be able to see the Earth so far away might actually make them have a breakdown. And what does the law say about protecting people's health when it comes to travelling in space, actually human beings being in space? Well, I mean, the, the health question is an interesting one because it, it's certainly been the subject of a lot of ongoing research into the health effects of outer space. And as you say, they can be very, very significant. The Outer Space Treaty and the astronaut agreement that, that relates to that and builds on that um, basically uh, puts astronauts in a privileged position. It says that they should be treated as the envoys of mankind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that states should provide, all states should provide all, all the assistance they can to astronauts who might find themselves in distress. Yes. Um, and that all sounds well and good in theory. It's not exactly clear in practice what that's going to mean. No. Um, but certainly in the foreseeable future, we can envisage that states would do whatever they can to, to assist astronauts. Where this becomes more complicated is when we think about um, not only astronauts who might be going to space for scientific purposes, um, but space tourists. Yes. So someone who might be going to space not to advance human knowledge, but to have the capacity to say, well, you know, I'm in space. Um, and of course, people have paid for um, places on the International Space Station. Um, there's a variety of commercial uh, providers looking to provide commercial space flight. Um, and the, one of the issues there that we really don't know the answer to is how many of these people will be treated as, as astronauts and have that kind of universal obligation to assist, and how many will be treated as what is called a spaceflight participant, mm. that is someone else. Um, of course. And the, the obligations of states to, split, 
space flight participants are in fact much less than they are to astronauts, or that's that's one of the interpretations. Mm. Um, so it's not clear how far this will go in terms of um, we know that someone who is an astronaut who is doing effectively science in space um, has this status of an envoy of mankind. Um, we don't know how far that goes when you start talking about people who are just doing it for the thrill. Of course, of course. And I suppose one of the other things as well, which again is the remarkable things about the Outer Space Treaty, the idea of an astronaut being protected, that obviously comes from the Cold War again. And you know, if something goes wrong, and because the Soviet Union was so large and because the uh, the opposing side of the world was so large, if a, if a cosmonaut landed in Australia, Australia would return them. In the same way, if, if an American astronaut landed in the Soviet Union, they'd be returned as well, which is a really important thing because generally at that stage, at least anyway, most astronauts and cosmonauts were part of the military. And in pretty much every other aspect, if you're a military person in, a, in a, an enemy or foreign territory and you're arrested, well, you can be placed under as, as, a, as a prisoner of war or anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably important to, to note that although kind of, you know, the Cold War um, went on for a long time, and, and yes, there, it's a Cold War, but um, in fact, there, there's no... Um, there's no sense in which they, they're looking to kind of imprison individual people. So um, certainly, you know, spies, people involved in, in breaches of the law are, are one uh, scenario. Um, but they were quite happy to agree that people that went to space, even if they had a military background, um, were entitled to special protection. And they realised how dangerous this was. They know mm-hmm. that um, going to outer space is still this remarkable thing. Um, it's highly hazardous. It's, it's, uh, it puts... Um, the individuals in, in particular danger, and so they were happy to agree to um, to assist individuals on in outer space, and also um, to return them if they you know, landed on their territory on Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what's your opinion on uh, a moon base being built? Now, at the moment, the Chinese are talking about building a moon base, and it's one of those things where you know you have the International Space Station, although it's run by Russia, it's still the International Space Station with multiple nationalities on board. Uh, do you feel that the Chinese uh, concept of a moon base would be more of a strategic military thing rather than scientific? Oh, look, I think it's a bit hard to speculate about exactly what the, the ends would be served by a moon base. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a lot of scope for... Um, scientific research mm-hmm. um, and you know the space station is fantastic but it won't be with us forever and it's um, no it, it enables a particular sort of research to be done um, obviously there's a lot more out there mm-hmm. um, and people talk about the moon people talk about Mars um, possibly you know other um, close celestial bodies well close in, in galactic terms of course um, and you know it, it's really a question of yes uh, this can be a huge scientific thing. Um, what's the benefit to a state of establishing a military outpost? It's not immediately clear to me what that would be. No. So there are some restrictions on, um, on in fact, putting military installations uh, on celestial bodies. They come out of the Outer Space Treaty as well as um, for those few states party to it, the Moon Agreement. Um, but you know the. I don't think it's not like the, the islands in the South China Sea where there's an obvious strategic of course. gain from establishing an installation. Uh, it's not necessarily obvious that that's true in outer space. So I suppose really when it comes to it, a moon base, uh, more than anything, is a, it's a transit point between 
Earth and Mars, essentially. It's easier, be easier to ship people to the moon and then to fuel up at the moon rather than having to bring all that stuff with you every time. Look, I think, I'm sure that's true. I'm not a, an expert on the physics of this. I think, in fact, um, it's much easier if you could do all of those things on a satellite rather than on the moon, um, simply because, um, you know, the moon also has gravity, so you have to escape that to get in and out. Of course. But, um, there's, there's the kind of the significance about um, what you can do with, you know, further missions. There's the scientific significance. And then there is, and it's important to remember that outer space has always been played in this way too, um, just the international bragging rights. Um, it's a very long time since human beings walked on the moon mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the next person to do so, if they are Chinese, as it appears they will be, um, will bring a certain cachet to their country. Of course, of course. And that's a really big thing. It's actually, mentioning that, I think it's very important, uh, during the Apollo missions in the United States, for every dollar the United States government put into it, they made $3 back to the economy because the people loved the idea of it. And it is one of those things where, unlike most other things, the whole world can unite together because it's all of us going to outer space, not just a couple of people, it's everybody, it's humanity taking that next step forward, which is an amazing idea, an amazing concept. And I mean, when it comes to Mars, we're really not that far away from people setting foot on Mars, probably, I mean, in, in my opinion anyway, sort of a decade away. And uh, I mean, it's, it's quite an amazing idea of, of, you know, in 50 years time, being able to say, oh, I'm just gonna pop over to Mars for the day. And, you know, <laughs> maybe one day it'll be like that. Now, there's another question I have for you, which is, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of this or not, but it was a thing run by the United States Air Force in, 19, in the 1950s, which is co called Project Alpha 119er. And what that actually is, was it was the United States' plan to detonate a nuclear bomb on the moon, basically to see what would happen. And uh, have you heard of this? Look, I haven't heard of the specifics. That's okay. To talk in general terms. That's okay. So in general terms, the reason why it was stopped in 1963, and you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, 1963, where everyone sort of was getting together and starting to talk about this stuff, uh, the Particle Nuclear Test Ban Treaty was, was made in 1963, and that's actually what stopped these, these, the NASA doing these tests. And uh, the, reason, the reason, and the only reason I mention it, is that in fact at this point seems to be where the world came together and said, let's go and explore space rather than trying to blow it up. And uh, it goes back to my point before of, of space exploration being this amazing thing where everyone can get together and do it and can essentially, you know, be all part of humanity. Now, the other question I have when it comes to space law and space conflict, now, there's something called the Woomera Manual which is being made by the University of Adelaide. And um, can you tell me much about that? So look, I, I can certainly talk about the Woomera Manual. So the Woomera Manual is um, a project uh, led by four universities, the University of Adelaide, um, University of Nebraska, um, Exeter University in the UK, and um, the University of New South Wales in Canberra. Mm -hmm. um, and the purpose behind the Woomera Manual is to try and clarify the international law that is applicable to military activities in outer space. Now this is significant because, um, as with other areas of space law, the Outer Space Treaty sets out some very general principles relating to um, the use and exploration of outer space. 
But within those principles, it doesn't really give any concrete detail about how states should conduct themselves in particular instances. Um, and so as the risk of conflict, armed conflict in space has grown, so has awareness that we don't really have a clear articulation of all of the rules that will govern this. Mm -hmm. And so the purpose of the Warmer Emanuel is to, to write uh, a set of rules um, that the, the authors of the manual think represent what the international law is that governs military activities in outer space. Okay. Um, so you started off talking about um, you know, nuclear weapons and the, and the moon and, and so on. So um, there are some provisions. So the Outer Space Treaty, for example, makes it illegal to um, place in, in orbit um, a weapon of mass destruction. Um, of course, the, the attraction of a nuclear weapon is, is much reduced in outer space in terms of their effectiveness as a weapon. But what we have seen is the development of technology um, that, that does apply in outer space contexts that could be used in an armed conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and the more states become dependent on outer space, the greater the likelihood of conflict in space. Yes. So I think it's important to say that we're not trying to run around and say there should be a war in space. Um, obviously, international law in space as on Earth is geared towards prevention of conflict. Um, having said that, it would be naive to run around and pretend that there is no risk of armed conflict in space. Just to give you an idea, states are now so dependent on outer space for so many things. So um, if I want to come around and visit your house, for sure I will be putting into my phone the details of where you live and asking it to tell me how to get there. That of course is space, it's GPS, yes. it's provided by a constellation of 23 or 24 satellites in low Earth orbit. Um, if I want to log on to my internet banking and see how much money is in my account or go to an automatic teller machine, I'm relying on the timing that's provided mm -hmm. by GPS. Um, and so, you know, if you can extend that to the battlefield, you can see the strategic and military significance yes. of this. So in many ways, people say, um, we don't want to have a space war, and we don't want to have a war in outer space, um, but we've already had one. Um, so the first conflict in which significant use was made of space assets is the 1991 Gulf War. Um, and once we can see militaries making extensive use of space technology, then you can also see the advantage for opposing forces in trying to prevent or degrade that use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's why um, it's realistic to talk about the risk of armed conflict in space. Yes. Space is very important to militaries and to states generally. And if it's that important, obviously it's going to be something that factors into decision-making in armed conflict. Mm -hmm. The purpose, of course, behind the Warmer Emanuel is to try and articulate what is the law that applies there. Now, part of that answer is simply to say, well, it's the same law that applies to armed conflict on Earth. Um, but because outer space is such a unique environment, and because there are the principles of outer space law that have to be taken into account as well, um, there's going to be some modification of those rules from the Earth context to the outer space context. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the Warmer Emanuel is intending to do, to try and explore what the law is going to be governing conflict in outer space. Okay. So when it comes to prosecuting those laws, so if somebody does uh, commit a war crime, for instance, in outer space, can you actually take that person to The Hague and prosecute them? Or is it, is it, is it a separate thing from on Earth? So look, I think that... Um, the answer is yes and no. I know that's a complicated way of putting it, mm -hmm. but um, 
particular institutions uh, may have issues. So it's probably, um, for example, uh, not necessarily all that likely that, that these crimes will come within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court as it's currently, um, currently stated, although some things certainly would. Um, but having said that, if you can establish that there is a clear law and that there's been a breach of that law, then it's up to states, as they do on earth, to work out how they want to deal with that. So individual criminal liability is one thing, but the regime of international law that holds states to account for their conduct and the conduct of their um, agents um, is the way in which international law is enforced generally, and it's also the way in which these principles in outer space would also be enforced. Okay. It's, it's, it, it fascinates me, and it's one of the things which also people don't really think about. After, you know, after watching Star Trek and seeing the shields come up and protect everything, life in space is is very precious compared to on Earth in the way that it only takes a slight malfunction and everybody's dead. And in the same way in space conflict, if, a, if some sort of projectile comes through the fuselage of a, of a spacecraft, if it's a large spacecraft with a thousand people on board, that's the end. It, it's, it's not gonna be like in Star Trek where they can you know, lock off one section. The whole thing would, would depressurize probably and um, a lot of people did and so it's so important to have laws which which protect and and try and predict to prevent uh, that's right look i think the other thing that's worth remembering as well when we're talking about conflict in outer space um, there will be consequences in space there'll be consequences for um, people in space if there are people in space at the time and in that place um, there'll be consequences for assets in space um, but probably more importantly there'll be consequences on earth so this is where um, international law in its traditional sense will come in and say well if you're going to do something in outer space and the consequence of that is going to be damage to civilians and civilian installations on earth then there are rules regulating what you can and cannot do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it actually makes me think of early earth uh, exploration and especially when Australia was first settled by Europeans and uh, if somebody committed a major crime in the, let's say, the New South Wales colonies, it might take four to eight months to send word back to the UK and then four to eight months to get the word back again. And I suppose the same thing happens if somebody's on Mars, if there's a colony on Mars and there's a murder that takes place, for instance, and that person has to be sent back to Earth, it might be a year before they get back. Well, I mean, I think this is one of the interesting areas when we're considering the, the future exploration of outer space and the things that are going to become technologically possible. Um, as we see it at the moment, um, a colony on Mars would be a one-way trip. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't presently have um, the technology to send people to Mars and to bring them back. No. Um, although we probably have within our grasp the technology to send them and leave them there. Um, and that raises all sorts of questions about how they're going to govern themselves. Um, Obviously in the Martian there's an easy solution, they apply the law of the sea and off they go, but um, in in reality it's going to be a more complex beast than that. Um, And I think one of the other questions that floats around this for me is why do we assume if there's a colony on Mars that they will want to be regulated by people on Earth? Mm -hmm. Um, So we've tried colonisation on Earth and it didn't work all that brilliantly. why do we assume that when we send people up to establish a permanent colony on a, a celestial body that they will be guided by the rules that we set? Um, I think there's an interesting question about the extent to which once you have a permanent settlement on a celestial body um, that will be conducted by the people who are part of that settlement independently of what we might 
wish them to do from here on mm, out. Mm. Um, but of course, that's a long way off that oh, particular of question. Uh, but I think it is worth remembering. You know, there are, of course, ways in which uh, you could deal with these things where you could enforce um, criminal law in a, you know, in a celestial context. Um, but it's worth also thinking about this question of ultimately, um, is humankind an earthbound species or or is there a, a broader question to look at? Of course. One of the things which uh, comes to mind for me is ethics in space. And uh, if you can just think for a moment and, and picture uh, a colony on Mars, somebody commits a major crime, so like, like murder, for instance. What do you do with that person? I mean, when it comes to it, uh, if you're from the United States, in at least some states anyway, you might say, OK, well, capital punishment's the way to go. But obviously, if you're in Australia or in most of the Commonwealth countries, uh, capital punishment is no longer used. However, in space, keeping, keeping the oxygen for somebody to breathe is expensive and is, is complicated. It's not like you can pop outside and, and look at the nice fresh air and breathe the nice fresh air. So what do you do with somebody? I mean, I know that's a really difficult question to ask, but, but is, is ethics an important part of space law? Well, I think ethics is certainly an important part of space exploration. Um, the extent to which it's involved in space law may be less. Um, but the idea that, um, that the Outer Space Treaty implements is not radically different from the idea that's implemented, for example, in the Law of the Sea Convention, um, in which you recognise the authority of a state to um, make and enforce laws in respect of particular things. So, um, you know, there's a an ability for the state, the flag state of a ship or the, the state of registration of an aircraft um, to make laws regulating the conduct on board that, that mm -hmm, vessel. Mm -hmm. um, the same is true in the Outer Space Treaty in terms of a provision enabling the state of registration of a space object um, to make laws regulating the conduct there. So um, it's not a legal vacuum. Uh, astronauts will take uh, and spaceflight participants will take with them um, the law of particular jurisdictions from Earth um, and those jurisdictions will be entitled to enforce that law. And so mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. could choose to enforce that in the same way they do on Earth, um, including through you know, the use of, of punishments that not all states would accept. I suppose really when it comes to it, I think you're right about the idea that, that, that Martians might actually just choose to live their own way. And really, what's, what's to stop them? I mean, if you're that far away, it's not like a government inspector can pop over and just double check. Essentially, you can do what you like. I suppose that's true. Of course, you know the reliance of um, colonies on celestial bodies on Earth is going to be very high for a long time. Mm. So, um, you know, to the extent that they still require um, facilities, services, and so on from Earth, um, they're going to have to uh, comply effectively with yes. what, what Earth demands are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, certainly, it is an interesting question about um, if you're going to create a, a society. Um, on a celestial body, um, how would you go about doing that? And um, I'm sure there are many of us who, who would like to think that there would be a process that uh, is democratic and, and um, representative and that builds on um, the sort of institutions and protections that, that we think individuals should enjoy. Of course. Wonderful, wonderful. Associate Professor Matthew Stubbs, thank you so much for joining me today. A great pleasure. Thank you for the talking. That was Associate Professor Matthew Stubbs on Space Law. Next time, I'll be joined by the Honourable Chris Picton, member for Ghana, and a member of the Australian Labor Party, 
in South Australia. Until then, keep thinking politically.